Morning, George. Good morning, Pastor. Morning. Okay, George is from Burundi and came here four years ago or almost four years ago, or we were just saying this. How long has it been? Yeah, um, April 6th is going to be four years ago. April 6th, it'll be four four years. years. Yeah. And came here with a degree in economics, having left a very good job in Burundi, and came here as a political refugee because his life was in danger in Burundi because of the ethnic violence and uh, government instability. And uh, George has seen his share of personal violence uh, within his family and difficulty since he came here. I think for a while you were literally on the street in D.C. This is correct? Yes. And it was cold. Oh, yes. (laughs) (laughs) That was four years ago. Yes. And today you've got a a good job. Uh Uh-huh, yeah. (laughs) And, And a car. Yes. And as of last week, a fiancé. Oh, yes. <laughs> so, some of you, sorry my son isn't here because some of you the guys that are single, take some notes, okay? <laughs> but you and I were saying, George, how important it is to remember. So, what is it that you need to remember? Uh, first of all, it's what you have done for me. Uh, we was talking like three years ago, if, well, the first time I meet with you. If you tell me, George, in three years you're going to have this, you're going to do this, believe me, I'll say, Pastor Ed, I think you, I realize you're getting older right now. <laughs> I, I believe because, you know. That's not that funny. Because <laughs> it is amazing. It is, you know, it is a miracle for me. And it's something I can't explain using my brain or my knowledge. Uh, there is no way I could make it without him. So, and when I see people around me, people who have done a lot in my life, like my uh, Martha, Rhonda, <laughs> and Coach Kyle, and Jeff, all the people have done a lot in my life. So that makes me thinking, and I remember, make me go back, see what I have done in my life. So, and that helped me to humble myself to know it's not about me, it's about him. So, yeah. I thought it was great, George, when you were saying how we're prone to forget. It's hard for us to remember. And, and why is it hard for us to remember? It is hard for us to remember because of this, the flesh. You know, in Isaiah 40, verse 6 to 7, they say, God say, people are like grass. And if you see that verse, what grass need? I think grass needs a good soil, it needs water, it needs everything, so grass can look beautiful. It's the same thing with men. Men, we need a lot of stuff, so it's easy for us to forget because we are so busy. I need a car, I need a job, I need everything in my life to make my, myself busy, to make myself happy. So when it comes to that time, it is really hard for me to love somebody else as myself because mm. I'm so busy for myself. Technically, I'm like a grass. So it is really hard for us to remember from my own understanding and what I, I believe. It is really hard for men to remember most of the time when he had everything he was looking for. Mm. When he, had, he already passed that foundation, 
So when you're looking for foundation, that's where you're looking God. I need foundation. I need everything to make me myself happy. I need to settle. I need to establish my life. So when you have been established, you have that foundation to put a brick in the wall, you're going to forget about God because you already have the foundation already. So what do you do to remember? Take my time. Stay by myself. Just go back in the past. And, you know, as he said, Passover. He already clean, and right now he established my life. And when I go by myself and crying and, and ask forgiveness and humble myself, that makes me feel like, you know, you have done a lot in my life. This is not about me again. And happiness, we were talking about happiness. And you ask, are you exciting? I said, Pastor, there is nothing I can be excited for because I didn't do it. He did. So I have to be thankful and glory him than for me to feel like, oh, my goodness, I see a lot of stuff happen. Oh, I did this, I did this, I did this, this happened. No, he did this. So there is no reason for me to be happy, but I can glorify him. Amen. 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 Thank you, George. Speaking of Passover, Gateway, this is Chris Levi. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Chris, we are going to uh, engage in um, Seder meals, so the Passover meal, April 23rd. So Saturday evening, April 23rd, we're going to try uh, to celebrate the Passover together with uh, fully informed Passover, so God-honoring, Christ-filled Passover, because the real meaning of the Passover has, has come. And Chris has been organizing that. Chris and his wife, Lisa, have been organizing that for us because you, ha- you guys have done this for a couple of years. Uh, yes, yes, we have. We did it uh, two years ago at our previous church. We, uh, well, our small group decided to do a study on the Passover, and we wanted to culminate that study with an actual cedar meal. And the, and the ceremony. And we became the focal point for it because everybody in our small group decided that the person that should lead it should be the person with the most Jewish last name. So, <laughs> so Chris Levi, you're, yeah. of course, elected. So, yeah, that's how that happened. <laughs> and we did it twice. We've done it. We did it two years ago with our small group, and then we did it the following year with our Sunday school class. So... Why, Chris, or, or what's been the benefit for you? You know, why repeat it? Why willing to do it again with us? What, what's the connection for you? For me, it was, I really don't know how to say it. I'm just going to, I'll just go ahead and say it. It really opened up a lot of the scripture for me that I didn't really, I mean, you know, you read through some of that stuff and you just kind of, I don't know, I don't want to say tune it out, but it just, it doesn't apply. You don't really feel that connection. And I noticed as we were going through it and learning about, you know, all the symbols, the unleavened bread and the bitter herbs and all this and how it applied to the celebration of uh, coming out of Egypt, but how it could also apply to what Jesus Christ did. A lot of the parables and the scripture just really came alive to me in a way that it never had done before. And I'll also say this real quick. It also made me sad in a way. Uh, I almost felt like, I believe it was Josiah when he read the scriptures and realized how much they had lost and he tore his robes. Because for generations, they didn't have the law. They weren't observing any exactly. of the God-prescribed rhythm for their lives. Exactly. Okay. Uh-huh. And so I kind of had that feeling going through, my head, through me as well. 
So you guys do it up when you do it. So, I mean, we're going to be looking today at Exodus 12, which is the institution of the Passover when it first happened. And from that, traditionally over the centuries, an elaborate first temple and then family ceremony has arisen around that. And you guys did your best to kind of find out how it might have been observed even in the time of Jesus or in the centuries around Jesus and to do that as best you could. So for you guys, I mean, a little bit, what does that involve, Chris? Uh, well, the first thing uh, we do is, in following with tradition, we deleaven our house. That's not as easy as it sounds. That's a really <laughs> difficult thing it's, to it's, do. It's a, it's a very difficult thing to do, but we deleaven the house. We prepare all the food at our house, but once it's been deleavened, and then when we actually have the ceremony, one of the things that they did was they sat on the floor. So we have the tables elevated on milk carts, and then we have everybody bring a pillow, and you sit on the floor to have the ceremony and have the meal. There's a couple of things with that deleavening thing. And by the way, speaking of how difficult it is, I don't know if you knew this, Chris, but you probably did because you're Chris Levi. But that leaven is so ubiquitous. It's, it's everywhere. That when it they is. could not find leaven or, or they didn't have leaven, they could go out and scrape dew off of grape leaves and there would be leaven in it because it's just in the air. You'd be surprised at what you will find leaven in when you're actually trying to go through. It's not just in your bread products. It's in, you know, stuff like barbecue sauce. And, I mean, I'm just trying to think off the top of my head, salad dressing and things like that. It's in a lot of stuff. And, of course, for them and for Jesus, leaven was one of the principal metaphors for sin and impurity in our lives. In addition, they were encouraged or instructed to not eat leaven because leaven took time to rise. And so this was also, this meal is going to be done in haste. You guys are going to get out of here, and I don't want any leaven in anything. So that was also part of the first leavening experience. Okay, any encouragement that you might have, Chris, for somebody who's never done this before? Just come and enjoy. It's a celebration. There are solemn parts to it, and we get our communion ceremony from parts of the Passover. But it is really a celebration of freedom. For the Old Testament Jews, it was celebration of freedom from slavery. And for us as uh, followers of Jesus Christ, it's that celebration of freedom from sin and freedom from this world. So uh, if you come into it with that mindset, you'll have a good time. Chris, if you would, Leviticus 23, and I think it's 4 through 6. These are the Lord's appointed feast, the sacred assemblies you are to proclaim at their appointed times. The Lord's Passover begins at twilight on the 14th day of the first month. On the 15th day of that month, the Lord's Feast of Unleavened Bread begins. For seven days you must eat bread made without yeast. Amen. All right, let's stand together and pray. Father, we pray that even this morning you would bring the history of this, the reality of it really, what this the shadow points toward, that you would underscore and bold and italicize that in our lives. Lord, we make ourselves available to you this morning. We make our schedules available to you, our time, the rhythm of our lives. We open our hearts, we open our chests to you. In the strong name of Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. You may be seated.
We are in a series of messages where we're talking about the rhythm of our story, how we manage our lives. So how should I set my schedule? How should I manage my time? It turns out there's a right answer to that question. We should set our schedules according to a God-honoring, God-focused rhythm. We should set our time according to a God-honoring, God-focused rhythm. In his book, Renovation of the Heart, uh, author Dallas Willard says this, when we open ourselves to the writing of the New Testament, when we absorb our minds and our hearts in one of the Gospels, for example, or in letters such as Ephesians or 1 Peter, the overwhelming impression that comes upon us is that we are looking into another world, another life. It's a divine world and a divine life. It's a life in the kingdom of the heavens. Yet it's a world and a life that ordinary people have entered and are entering now. It is a life that seems open to us and beckons us to enter, and we feel its call. So how do we enter such a world? How do we end up experiencing the kind of life that Dallas Willard seems to be teeing up? Willard's answer to this question is absolutely right. He says that we experience this life by living the way Jesus lived. We follow his pattern. We do what Jesus did. And I don't mean just we be nice to people. I mean we examine how Jesus lived his life, how he spent his time, and we follow that example. This is what Jesus meant when he said, follow me, learn from me, be my students, live the pattern that I laid down for you. And as it turned out, Jesus, just like the Old Testament saints before him, lived his life by a very definite rhythm. And and this is why we've spent six weeks talking about the rhythm of our lives and looking at the rhythm that God prescribed for the Old Testament saints. This kind of rhythm allows us to experience the kind of life that God intended for us to have. This kind of rhythm allows us to experience the kind of life that God intended for us to have. So what kind of rhythm did Jesus practice? Well, first of all, it's pretty apparent from the biographies of Jesus that it was his habit each day to begin his day with some time connecting with the Father. Secondly, we also know that he had very clearly defined and definite ideas about Sabbath and Sabbath-keeping. And thirdly, we can tell he was observant of the annual feasts, so there was a seasonal rhythm as well to his life. If we want to experience the life of the kingdom of the heavens, as Willard puts it, then we will adopt a similar God-honoring rhythm for our lives. It's that simple. It's why we've talked about Lent a few weeks ago, and we've hoped and prayed that we would be able to dive in this year to a kind of Lenten season, a kind of Lenten rhythm. We find a rhythm for our lives that enhances our connection to God, and that's the rhythm we follow. We don't allow the rhythm of our lives to be dictated by work schedules and school schedules and kids' schedules. Of course, that's a prominent feature of our lives, but we determine the rhythm of our lives in a way that enhances our connection with God. We don't allow just overwhelming busyness to be a tidal wave that prevents us from being connected to God, but instead we seize the rhythm of our lives and we use the rhythm of our lives in a way that will enhance our connection with him. So in the passage Chris read for us in Leviticus 23, God lays out the meat of his prescribed rhythm for the Old Testament saints, just one right after the other, in order. Here's what it involved. It involved a weekly Sabbath observance. 
Then the seasonal observance of Passover and Unleavened Bread Festival, the First Fruits, Feast of Weeks, Feast of Trumpets, Day of Atonement, and Feast of Tabernacles, most of which we have talked about. This means that there was a weekly rhythm, right? Dean talked about it last week. Six on, one off. Six on, one off. And there was an annual rhythm, meaning there were critical times of the year and throughout the year, set-aside times, times for celebration and thanks and teaching and remembrance. Times of forced remembrance to, to prevent the Old Testament saints from doing exactly what George knows all too well is easy for us to do, even us Americans. Perhaps most importantly, these times were set aside for recalibration so that our internal clock could be set to God's standard time and not to Eastern Jerusalem time. Now, out of all these celebrations and remembrances, it would be impossible to say which was the most important because they were all important to a God-honoring rhythm. But if we were forced to make a case for any of these observances as being the most important, you could make a case for our topic today, the, the Passover. So to understand the celebration of Passover, we've we got to look at where it came from. So Exodus 12, and we're going to take a quick gander at Exodus 12. So I'm looking this morning at Exodus 12. And I'll be reading a couple of sections from Exodus 12, but here's what you need to know. You may know the setting. Israel had the children of Israel, the children of Jacob had been enslaved in uh, Egypt for some 400 years. And God sent Moses to encourage, let's say, Pharaoh to let the Israelites leave. And to accompany Moses and to add weight to his words, God sends plagues, 10 to be exact. Now, all of the plagues, or at least the first nine plagues, represented regular occurrences in Egypt. If you remember the plagues, these will sound familiar to you. For instance, red silt from the upper Nile sometimes flowed toward the capital, and it would turn the Nile outside of the capital blood red. And it was not unheard of for this phenomenon to generate an abundance of frogs fleeing the silt-filled river and swarming the coast. As these frogs died off, of course, gnats and, and flies were naturally generated in abundance. This then, in turn, could produce diseases, even skin disorders, like boils. This explains why the Egyptian magicians were able, in a sense, to conjure up similar phenomenon when Moses would come before Pharaoh and warn Pharaoh of impending plagues. This explained why Pharaoh refused to believe them as God-ordained signs. But as the plagues began to pile up on one another, the magician's abilities began to wane, and the coincidences of the timing began to stretch the imagination even of the most hardened skeptic. Coincidentally, these things kept happening right after Moses said they would. Of course, as we all know, there are no coincidences. And Pharaoh began to soften, but ultimately he couldn't bring himself to let go of such a cheap source of labor. So God told Moses to warn Pharaoh about the 10th plague, the final plague. This plague would have devastating consequences. This plague would reveal beyond doubt the full power of God's glorious hand and the full measure of his wrath. This plague would involve the death of the firstborn of everything in Egypt. And with this 
plague, all natural explanations vanish. And with that, so does Egypt's resolve. With this plague, Egypt and her gods were outdone by Moses and his Yahweh. Now, I say it that way for specific reasons. I say Egypt and her gods were outdone by Moses and his Yahweh because this was always a part of the subtext in the ancient Near East. It was never just a matter of one culture versus another culture or one army versus another army or one ruler versus another ruler. All contests always involved the favor and the power of the respective gods. It was always a contest of me and my God versus you and your God. And you know, this had to be in the minds of the rank-and-file Israelites as well through this whole episode, and we can tell from the narrative that it was. I know we've worshipped this God since the time of our forefathers, Moses, but surely he can't be greater than the Egyptian gods. Look at how powerful they are. Look at how blessed they are. I mean, we're their slaves. Moses, can you just stop talking this foolishness? The more you invoke our God, the worse it gets for us. Clearly, he's no match for the Egyptian gods. It's amazing how we sometimes interpret our circumstances, isn't it? Absent God's perspective on timing needing to rely on faith in the power of our God in our lives, we instead grow weary and complain and lose sight and falter. George and I had dinner last night, and I was saying to George, some of you at Gateway have really walked this path with George, and thank you, although I know for those of you who have loved on and helped George, it's been more a blessing to you than it has been to George. But day in and day out, you know, George leaves the streets of D.C. and his lawyer makes some connection with some woman out here and then coincidentally he stumbles into Gateway and Gateway gets the opportunity to serve him and through that, you know, George's English was, English is about the 12th language George speaks and he didn't speak it very well at the time. So the first time I met with George, Anne Cormier had to translate the French for George and I, because we just couldn't converse otherwise. He's come a long way. Day in and day out, things just really seem to move slowly. Finding a job and getting the right permitting and the, the government allowing George the right to work and transportation. George had the opportunity to move into an apartment above the office that our church has. Those of you who aren't familiar with us, we bought an old home that used to be out here in the middle of nowhere, and now it's right across the street from 10,000 townhomes right down the road. And the house has a little apartment above what used to be the garage. George lived in that apartment for a while, and day in and day out, you know, how's it going, George? And George and I smile at one another because we can't really speak because he speaks those weird languages. You know, day in and day out, you don't see a lot of, I mean, there's not a whole lot of change. You kind of have to dial into God's perspective, don't you? Day in and day out, and one day turns into seven, and that turns into three weeks, and that turns into four months, and that turns into a year and a half. And then four years later, George and I are able to go out to dinner, and he says to me how important it is for him to remember because I would have never believed on the night that we first had dinner that my life could now be this. It's amazing how we sometimes interpret our circumstances absent God's perspective on timing and needing to rely on faith in the power of God in our lives. Instead of that, we grow weary and we complain and we lose sight and we falter. 
So finally, the time came for ultimate deliverance, and God told Moses to tell the people, and this is Exodus 12, I want you to set aside a lamb on the 10th day, a perfect lamb. I want you to take care of it for the next four days. Then on the 14th day of the month, I want you to kill it. But only kill what you need, meaning consider the size of your family, and if you don't need a whole lamb to feed your family, then share one with your neighbor, because I want it all eaten. Then I want you to roast it over a fire. Don't boil it in water. Roast it over a fire and eat it, all of it. Then take some of its blood, the blood that's spilled over when you kill it. I want you to take a branch, and I want you to paint your doorframe with the blood of the lamb. And I want you to do all of this wearing your traveling gear because you need to be ready to go because we're about to make things happen. I'm going to read now verses 12 and 13 of Exodus 12. And you know what's coming, some of you, part of Gateway. Let's go old school. Stand with me out of reverence for God's word, if you would. Exodus 12, verses 12 and 13. And the Lord said to Moses, On the same night I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both men and animals, And I will bring judgment on all of the gods of Egypt. And then this thing he repeatedly said because they needed to get it. Because they don't get the narrative yet. They're thinking it's, you know, our God, we call him Yahweh. He's been really strong at times in the past. Boy, hopefully he's stronger than the gods of Egypt. And the Lord consistently through their whole history reminds them, there are no gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The God of heaven and earth. I created it all. Isaiah told us. They make statues and they make wood and then they bow down to They can't speak. They can't hear. They're wood. If they get knocked into a fire, they burn. I am the Lord. So he says that here. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you. When I strike Egypt, you may be seated. So, interestingly, the word Passover is the Hebrew word Pesach, and it's their version of a P, which is on the right side because Hebrew reads uh, right to left. So it's backwards. It's their version of a P, then their version of an S, and then their version of a hard H, Pesach. And that word can mean to slip by or to pass over. It also means to be compassionate toward. And it means to protect. In fact, most Jewish commentaries throughout translate this word protect. And when I protect you, I like to think of it as sort of kind of all of those combined. I was thinking about this this week. You know, this is, you know, somebody like George, and those of you who speak other languages will kind of get this, but when you go from one language to another, it's really unusual for words to match up one-to-one. There are usually nuances here that aren't here in this language. Let's take the word, for instance, party. The English word party represents the idea, and we understand this because it's our language, but it represents the idea of a group of people getting together. 
And almost always it represents some idea of fun and celebration, but it can represent everything from a group of nine people or six people coming over to Jan's house for dinner. It represents everything from that to a rave with a whole bunch of young people smashing into one another and barely remembering what they're doing. And I'll bet you in other languages, they're coming up with different words for those two ideas. But we bring them all together under the word party. The same with the word Pesach. From now on, when you read that word Pesach, I want you to say, compassionate, protective Passover. I want you to throw them all together. The verb is only used five times in the Old Testament. One of those times is in uh, Isaiah 31.5. The rest of them are used in this context. But in Isaiah 31.5, go read that later. Not the NIV. The NIV translates it consistently as Passover. But there are several English translations that translate it as protective. And most uh, Jewish commentators translate the word Pesach here not as Passover, but as protection. I will protect you. I will compassionately protect Passover you. No destructive plague will touch you. Of course, after the Passover experience, later that night, Pharaoh realizes what's happening in Egypt, and he brings Moses back into his chambers, and he says, get out of here. And as Dean reminded us the last two times he preached, this is certainly the only time in history when slavers have paid slaves to leave them, and they did so. And so then what God prescribes for them is for seven days, I want you to not eat leaven, not have any leaven around you, but just grab what's around you and pull your tunic up and get busy and get out of here. And that became the celebration of unleavened bread, which sometimes the two of those together are called Passover. But they're really two distinct celebrations. Passover is the one night and then seven days of the celebration of unleavened bread. And through that whole event, we remember the time when God delivered the children of Israel out of Egypt. Let's follow that up and read verses 21 through 28. I won't make you stand this time. Exodus 12, 21 through 28. Then Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go at once and select the animals for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it into the blood in the basin, and put some of the blood on the top and on both sides of the doorframe. Not one of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning. When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the top and the sides of the doorframe and will pass over that doorway, or he will compassionately, protectively pass over that doorway. And he will not permit the destroyer to enter your house and strike you down. Obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants. In other words, do this regularly, year after year. Listen to this. When you enter the land that the Lord will give you as he promised, observe this ceremony as a way of recalibrating, as a way of thanking, and as a way of remembering. And when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? Then tell them. It's the Passover sacrifice to the Lord. It's the protection sacrifice. It's it's the gracious, compassionate protection slipped by Passover of the Lord who protected the houses of the Israelites in Egypt, who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt. 
and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. Then the people bowed down and worshipped. The Israelites did just what the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. So think about for a minute how significant this event was for the Israelite slaves, and you'll begin to get an idea of how significant this annual celebration would have been. I I mean, you and I, we need to think combination of Christmas and July 4th. So once a year, God prescribed for them a time of celebration and remembrance, and here's what the rhythm prescribed. Here's what God was after. So once a year, Israel, remember this. Not that you left Egypt. Not that you outwitted Egypt, and certainly not that you defeated Egypt, but once a year, set aside a week of your life to remember that God delivered you. God protected you. God established you. God Pesach. God saved you. And this was part of their annual rhythm. So over the years, as Chris and I were saying, an elaborate observance how this would be remembered evolved over time. First, it was a temple ceremony. And then when the temple was destroyed, it became a synagogue or family ceremony spread out throughout the world. Families would rid their household of leavening agents. They would cook a special meal that reminded them of the various elements of the story. And as they eat each element of the meal, they would retell the story, remembering. As George said, I take time and I think back. They remember what God did. They remember that God was the Pesach, that he was the deliverer and the protector. Okay, there is no obligation for Christians to celebrate these festivals. At one point, in fact, the Apostle Paul told a group of young Christians in Colossae that they should build their lives on Jesus. They should build their lives on Jesus in the same way that they started out by believing in him. So just like you started out believing in him, in that same way, build your life on him. Follow his example. Jesus and only Jesus was the consistent message of the first followers. And so along with that, Paul said this to those Colossians in chapter 2. He says, look, don't let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. Listen to this, because these are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, Paul says, is found in Christ. In fact, don't observe these festivals. Don't sign up. And we're going to be having sign-ups for the Seder meal out in, in the lobby over the next several weeks. We'll do it in four different locations. Uh, Chris and Lisa will host one. We have three other people who will be hosting them in various locations around the area. Don't sign up if you think of this somehow as a legal requirement. It isn't. And please don't sign up if you're tempted to think of of this as somehow adding something to your experience in Christ. It doesn't. But, of course, you can observe these festivals if you want to use them as an educational tool for your children. Or if you want to make them part of your rhythm, and you certainly should. But we're not required to celebrate them because the thing toward which these festivals point has come. The reality has appeared toward which the shadow pointed. The real substance of which Passover is a shadow has appeared. And either way, whether or not you observe these festivals, you and I must recognize the principle behind them. We need a rhythm in our lives that encourages our connection to God. Now, some of you are old enough to remember the commentaries of Paul Harvey. Paul Harvey is a guy who used to do a regular thing on the radio. 
and he would tell some inspiring story. And either at the beginning or the end of his little vignette, he would say, that's the rest of the story. That's my worst Paul Harvey impression. But here's the rest of the story. In the last week of his life, Jesus enters Jerusalem, and they waved palm branches at him. And they sang probably passages from Psalm 118, Hosanna, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. And then on the last night of his life, Jesus was in Jerusalem celebrating the Passover. He was celebrating the Seder meal with his disciples. And Jesus did what no self-respecting rabbi in his right mind would ever do. At the Seder celebration, there are four cups. They represent a variety of things. Most scholars believe it was the third cup, which is the cup of thanksgiving. At one point in the meal, Jesus took a cup of wine, and he says, this cup is my blood. This meal that we've been celebrating for 1,400 years, it's me. I am the Pesach. He took the bread, the unleavened bread, especially baked, after the home had been completely cleared of leaven. He took that bread, your sustenance, the bread that has reminded you of your own purity before him after all of the impurity is taken out, the bread that has reminded you of the haste with which he finally delivered you, finally and fully. That bread is my body. It's me. The real Pesach the real deliverer, the real savior, the real substance towards which the shadow pointed has come and has offered himself for us. That's why when his cousin John saw Jesus coming toward him in the Jordan River, he said, look, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. That's why at that last night, Passover meal, Jesus himself said, this cup is my blood. And now his blood gets painted over the doorposts of our lives and hearts when by faith we believe in him. That's the rest of the story. All right, we're creatures of habit, right? I bet you some of you noticed. Many of you didn't, but some of you noticed. I sat over here today, and I had two people early this morning come speak to me and say, what, 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 what? Completely out of or- disoriented. I always sit right over here with Diane, right in front of the Salise. Two people came... Wait, what? What are you doing? What are you doing over here? Yeah? Just come out of something out of order. You're in the wrong spot because we're creatures of habit. It's by design. So, creatures of habit. How do we set our schedules? This week, when you're thinking about managing your time, this is Holy Week. This is the week where we lead up to Good Friday on Friday night. We'll be here together in a sweet celebration and remembrance. And next Sunday is Easter, when he proved how much he loved us. But not only did he spread his arms, he had them nailed open. So uh, how do we set our schedule this week? You know, tomorrow you've you got stuff to do and you, you got your to-do list and your work schedule. How do we set our schedule this week? Well, we fix it around points of connection with God. We start with that, and then we fill in. We establish times. We establish moments. We establish 
the occasion, the time when we can remember and when we can celebrate and when we can recalibrate our minds and our hearts to God's standard time. Let's pray. Honestly, Lord, for some of us, this has been the first moment of stillness this week. So, Lord, by an act of our will, we set our hearts and our minds toward you. We decide today that we're going to invest this week in a way that enhances our connection with you. We're going to set our rhythm so that our internal clock can be calibrated to God's standard time. And this week, we're going to remember Jesus, the real Pesach, who has come to save us and set us free. And Lord, we're going to remember where we've been and where you've brought us. And Father, I pray that you would help us celebrate and glorify and give thanks and remember. And in that, that our lives would begin to conform to Jesus's as we follow the pattern by which he lived. Hear us, O Lord. In the strong name of Christ our Lord, we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Happy Palm Sunday. Thank you guys so much for coming and celebrating this with us. Go in peace and enjoy your Palm Sunday. <laughs>